this morning to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, the passage for this morning is found in your bulletin as usual. For the last two weeks in this season of Advent, we have been unpacking and meditating upon the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus coming to us in the flesh, and why He had to come to earth. And the way that we've been doing that, to remind all of you astute listeners and to inform those of you who have not been here, the way we've been doing that is thinking about the three offices of Christ, the three offices of ancient Israel that Christ has fulfilled in His coming, in His person, in His work. One of the things that I've sought to do in this series, and I will seek to do it again this morning, is to briefly work our way through all of history, through all of redemptive history, giving uh, the big picture, giving the whole story of how we have gotten to this point and what God has done in all that leads us up to this point. And so we continue this morning setting our hearts upon Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Through Jesus, God's voice is now among men. He is the final word. And through Jesus, man's presence before God is sure and certain. He is the great high priest. And then today, through a manger born in Bethlehem, comes a throne. Through swaddling claws comes a, a scepter of, of righteousness. And through the birth of a baby asleep on the hay comes a king making his enemies his footstool. What wonderful pictures for us to consider this Advent season. Listen as I follow and follow along as I read. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 13. Listen as I read. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated.
It's the storyline of our souls. It's built into the very fabric of who we are as creatures, as God's creatures, as human beings. Things are bad in Camelot. Why? Because King Arthur is gone. Robin Hood has appeared to to fight for the oppressed. Why? Because Richard the Lionhearted is gone. And his brother John abuses the throne. The land of Narnia longs for winter to be over. Longs to be out from under the grip of the white witch. If only Aslan will return. The creatures of Middle-earth wait. They wait for the return of the king who will unite the kingdoms. You see, all of these stories, all of these stories that resound with our souls are shadows that point to a reality that is no myth. It's the first of three truths that I want us to meditate on in this last topical sermon on prophet, priest, and king, and it's, it's this. We long for a king. We long for a king. Do you feel it? As much as our pride and our arrogance at times would like to suppress it, We feel our need for a strong and righteous ruler. It's part of who we are. It's part of who we're made to be. We we need a hero. We need a good king who can bring us peace, who can bring us safety, who can give us prosperity and security. And our children, our kids, for some degree, they look for that in us. And they look for that in the superheroes that they idolize. At times we mistakenly look for it in our politics, in our policies, in our prime ministers, in our presidents. But the longing is there. We long for a king, someone to make things right. As we return this morning to the book of Hebrews, to this letter, I want us to remember that this is a letter written in the first century to primarily Jewish Christians, those who were steeped in the stories of the Old Testament, those who were saturated with the traditions and the the rituals that dominated their culture. And leaving that stuff, leaving those, those years and years of, of tradition for the newness that was found in the person of Jesus and in His words, that, that wasn't an overnight thing for them. That was hard. And so the overarching message of this entire letter, which we'll, we'll study and we'll unpack in a fuller way at some point, the overarching message of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better He is greater than anything that has come before. He is greater than anything that can yet be revealed. So stick with Him. Don't go back to what you had before. Because Jesus is better. 
Don't abandon God's final word. Don't stop trusting in God's great and last high priest. And now today, don't fail to acknowledge and to follow the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Kingship was a concept that was rich in Jewish history, but long before that, it finds its roots, it finds its origin in creation. So once again, like we did last week, let's go all the way back to the beginning. God created us, male and female. He created us in His image. But even in the garden where righteousness reigned and where, where sin was absent, at least for a time, we were still limited beings. But we were given the right, we were given the privilege to rule, to have dominion over all that God had made, still subject to Him, dependent upon Him. But when sin entered the picture, when rebellion came knocking, our dependence became all the more stark. And it also became to hearts that rebelled and are still rebelling, our dependence became a frustration. And we'll return to that in just a minute. So fast forward again, God set apart a people for Himself through Abraham. He saved and set apart this people through Moses, through Joshua, and Yahweh, throughout all of this time, Yahweh quenched their longing for a king through himself. God was their king. They needed no other. Why would they need any other? But they weren't content. We weren't content. And so Israel did what was right in their own eyes, and God gave them judges, temporary men and women, to lead them in the way of the Lord, but things only got worse. They wanted to be like other nations, and so they longed for a king. They became discontent with Yahweh, and they turned to the Lord with a misguided desire, give us an earthly king. You see, God's people didn't need an earthly king, and yet they wanted the earthly influence, the earthly power that a king of Israel would bring. And so the Lord says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, the Lord says to Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the way of the king who will reign over them. You see, the Lord knew that once a creature, once a sinner sat on the throne, that trouble would ensue. And that's indeed what happened. Right out of the gate, there were issues with Israel's first king, Saul. He stumbled, he struggled, he refused to submit to God's Word. And so his reign culminates in this statement in 1 Samuel 15, 26. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return to you, for you have rejected the Word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king 
over Israel. And so we read that and we say, well, perhaps the the earthly experiment of Israel to have an earthly king, to have that longing quenched by a king on earth is over, but God has something bigger in store. Because in His mercy and in His grace, He would indeed give them another king, but this king would be His choice. And this king would be a a shadow of things to come for all of God's people. The king God chose would be the youngest of the sons of Jesse, the tender shepherd fielding his family's flocks, the one who didn't seem to possess the qualities needed to be a strong and powerful earthly king, and yet David became God's man. Years later, after David ruled well for the most part, God would renew his relationship, his covenant with Israel, and he would speak these words to David. The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That last phrase, we, we just heard it. We just read it last week in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In this story, of God meeting the need for His people's longing for a king. This promise to David points beyond his biological son Solomon, but points way beyond to the city of David, to the one promised. Because God would forever fulfill His creatures longing for a king, and it would come through the Incarnation. And that's the second truth that I want us to consider. Jesus was born to rule. Jesus was born to rule. We sing these phrases, we sing them once, twice, a few times a year. The little Lord Jesus laid down His sweet head Meek and mild, no crying he makes. Indeed, these are the phrases of Christmas that that convey that that moment, that humiliating moment, that humbling moment of Jesus coming to earth was indeed tender. It was indeed vulnerable, but it was far from the picture. Herod knew it but he didn't really know it. He couldn't have imagined the extent of this baby born to rule. Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote some 700 years before Jesus' birth one of the most well-known passages 
a passage that we're very familiar with this time of year, Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah wrote to a people in darkness, and he wrote these words to their hearts that desperately needed to hear news like this, a promise like this, and it's the same promise that we need to be reminded of every Christmas season, every Advent season. See, there was great gloom over the people of Israel in Israel's time. The Lord had deemed it necessary to judge His people through, for, for their rebellion, and so the shadow of, of Assyria looms before God's people. But the Lord does something amazing. He, in the midst of this pronouncement of judgment, He gives them hope. He gives them comfort. A child will rule. A child who is a mighty God, a child who is Emmanuel, God with us. And the kind of language that Isaiah uses to describe him, government on his shoulders, reign, throne, kingdom, this is not some quiet countryside impact. This is significant dominion, and indeed it will be. Our hearts long for a king. Jesus was born to rule, to be that king that our hearts desire. And then lastly this morning, Jesus' reign is now and forevermore. Jesus' reign is now and forevermore. Jesus has always been on the throne. Jesus has never let His creation go. This is His world. Every molecule of it, every second of time is His. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. But the coming of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, Christmas, we might say, inaugurated God's rescue operation that's really the beginning of the end. I stumbled across a, a poem this week. It's an allegorical poem of our, of our struggle and of our fight and of our journey I thought of our study in Pilgrim's Progress. In my mind's eye, I pictured, for those of you familiar, I pictured the return of, of Gandalf in the two towers when goodness is being overwhelmed by evil in the castle, and the king looks up to the hillside and he sees light. And Gandalf begins to descend from the hill. I want to read this poem to you. It's called Christmas as an Act of War. 
All the air now tastes of iron as the dust is tainted red. Frantic shouts across the valley rise in notes of mounting dread. Though we fight with all our fervor, we are falling to our foe. Jagged creatures dripping darkness, ripping through us row by row. We can lift our legs no longer. Pain is burning in our breath. In their eyes we find no mercy, only shadow, only death. Faces turn to find the castle. Voices cry out for the king. But with all the span between us, who could hear our suffering? All our swords have fallen heavy. Trembling we cower back as the creatures chant and cackle, setting for their last attack. Then a shout across the hillside draws our eyes across the land, silhouetted by the sunset, is the figure of a man. He lifts up his sword defiant, hulking shadow edged in light, and he spurs his steed to gallop, charging down into the fight. Raise your heads and see, my brothers. Shrink away and fear no more, for we have not been abandoned, and the king's son comes to war. Jesus was born to reign. And his reign is now and forevermore. His coming is an act of war against our helpless estate of sin, against the enemy's exploitation of us in our flesh. And it's a reign that's occurring now. It's a reign that our passage reminds us is awaiting the last surrender. Verse 13, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's one of the great pictures that we have. As Joshua in the Old Testament put his foot on the neck of the Amorites' king, Amorite kings, as he conquered them, so will the enemies of death and unbelief and idolatry and rebellion all those and all things that oppose God's rightful king will be dealt with. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Christmas. This is the only hope for joy, for peace, for love, all those words that we hear a lot about this time of year. And this truth matters long before the end. Jesus' reign is more than British royalty. It matters. It's not just a nice thing to sing about. It, it matters. It matters when you're stressing about American politics or, or world news or world conflicts because all of these things are a drop in the bucket of His mighty reign. And it matters when you're ordering your days. It matters when you're budgeting your time and when you're spending your money because where does your allegiance lie? What kingdom do you bow down to? It matters when you're fighting discouragement about your sin or about your suffering because you're not powerless. Things are not out of control. All things are in subjection to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. One of the things I've hated about these, not hated, strong word, one of the things I've disliked about these three sermons is there's so much more that could be said. 
So much that we could explore in regards to Jesus' kingship. But let me end here where we've ended before. The reign of Jesus also matters because Jesus' coming begins the restoration of our place to God-given dominion. Our place as kings and queens. The Heidelberg Catechism, one of our historical documents, says this well. Question and answer 32 talks about all of the implications, really, for the last three weeks of our time together. The question says, but why are you called a Christian? And the answer is this, because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in His anointed, excuse me, I share in His anointing. I am anointed to confess His name, prophets, to present myself as a living sacrifice of thanks, priests, to strive with a good conscience against the sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation and for all eternity, kings and queens. Brothers and sisters, we are prophets, we are priests, we are kings and queens, all because of a baby born in Bethlehem, a baby who would speak the very words of God, a baby who would offer himself as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and a baby who reigns now and whose kingdom will have no end. This week, as you gather with friends and family. Indeed, meditate upon the humility of our Lord. But don't just think about the manger. Think about the throne. Think about the scepter of righteousness. Think about the return of the King to make all things right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning for these great promises from Your Word. We thank You for this picture of the person and work of our Lord Jesus. Jesus, as You sit exalted at the Father's hands, we give You thanks. We give You praise. And we ask, we pray for Your return in power, and in glory. Father, until then, give us grace to journey, to battle, to speak, to mediate, and to rule in Your behalf. O Holy Spirit, take this word, apply it to the hearts of your people for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.